Well, thank you very much, and thank you all for, for coming. Um, this is a work in progress. It's a book that I'm doing um, that Cornell University Press threatens to publish at some point. And um, I present it to you in its preliminary form and hope that uh, I'll get some feedback so that I can make the mid-course corrections that I know or do. Um, past and future, I do leave out the present. And I leave out the present because I think there is no strategy right now. And uh, we'll get to that. I'll tell you what I think is going on, and, and uh, you can tell me uh, what you think is going on uh, and see if you agree that something is changing, that is, we're heading toward a, a strategy. Let me let's try to set it in context. I mean, many Japanese uh, do not believe Japan uh, has a coherent grand strategy, but few insist, a few insist that it never really did have a grand strategy. Um, you're, I'm sure, as familiar with the literature as I am. Ogata Sadako, for example, has, has, uh, who's one of Japan's most distinguished diplomats, uh, has declared that Japanese foreign policy has long been marked by a conspicuous absence of strategic thinking. Former Ambassador uh, Okazaki Sahiko, who you're all familiar with, maintains that apart from one exceptional decade, which was 1895 to 1905, uh, Japan's strategy has been naive, that's his word, and sterile, again, his, his word, in, in the post-war in particular. And these are practitioners who are saying it, but scholars uh, join them. Uh, Ienaga uh, Saburo uh, dedicated an entire chapter in his very influential book on the irrationality of the pre-war military. And uh, Kitaoka Shinichi, uh, currently in New York at the United Nations, uh, has argued that one of the great misfortunes of Japanese history has been uh, the extent to which idealism has dominated realism. Now, many of you have heard of General Tojo Hideki's very famous argument to Prince Konoe in 1941. Uh, he said that uh, sometimes a man has to jump with his eyes closed from the veranda of the Kyomizu Temple. Well, that's not about grand strategy. That's, that's about something else. <laughs> but, you know, much Japanese assessment of, of post-war strategy is little better. It's not just, you know, gosh, were we irrational, but now we're okay. No, it's... it's uh, it still goes on this way. In 1981, a, uh, a ground self-defense force general, uh, Takeda Goro, was forced to resign uh, after he complained publicly that Japan's security policy was based on lobbying rather than on careful strategic analysis. And we see that again and again. The JDA is a shopping ministry, not a policy ministry. Well, I think that's one of the changes I want to talk with you about today. I think it's very much a policy ministry today. But Japan is always somehow the favorite word that one always sees. It's always associated with the word mosaku. It's groping. It's groping for something. It's always a groping for strategy in particular. And for some, post-war Japanese strategy is, is incoherent for the very same reason that the pre-war strategy was incoherent, which is that Japan is chasing too many hares at the same time. Uh, by trying to pursue a policy that is simultaneously UN-oriented, comfortable for the American hegemon to which it's, for which it's a junior partner, and also promoting autonomous jishiboi, autonomous defense. You can't do all those things at the same time. So you end up with a strategy that looks more like porridge than, than anything else. Um, but the most common, I think, the most common explanation for Japan's, let's call it strategic deficit, uh, if you like, is the junior partnership with the United States that I, that I just mentioned. American security guarantees, many people say, and say it repeatedly, have, have sort of rendered Japan with a very limited sense of external threat. The Japanese just haven't really felt the need to do anything because the United States would take care of it in security terms. And so if you have little need to build uh, a, a military during the Cold War with the capability to deter aggression or to affect in any way the outcome of conflict, well then, you could avoid strategic thinking altogether and stay in your cocoon. And that's the, way, that's the way it's been seen. So now everyone's calling for a new strategy. Everyone's looking for a new strategy. You may have seen the, the, uh, the kickoff of the new series in the Asahi Shimbun, I think it was 22, 23, April, Shin Senryaku o Motomete, searching for a new strategy. And, and so you're going to see a year of this mosaku, this groping. Now, I'm, uh, the book I'm doing, that I want you to help me with is taking a different tack altogether. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not in the business of trying to give Japanese strategists too much credit. At the same time, I'm also not wishing to ignore their many mistakes. But 
um, I do think for the most part they've played a brilliant game and, and a very successful game. And I see reasons why we should expect Japan to continue to do so. So I want to get to that, which uh, is the, the future part, first by examining the past, examining the past, which is really the only way I know how to do it. So hopefully this will cooperate. And I've got to apologize for this. I was sort of hoping that you'd be able to read it, but I'm not sure that you can. I'm going uh, um, to do my best to, to make sense of this. Um, the basic point of this chart is that Japanese grand strategy has followed um, a fairly straightforward arc over time. Um, that is vigorous, sometimes each, each of these bo big boxes is a moment of consensus. And those many tributaries flowing into them are the moments of active discourse. Okay? And it's, it's uh, sketchy. It's a, it's a sketch. But the point is that vigorous, often very debilitating debates uh, over Japanese security have been punctuated by these three moments of consensus. Uh, and I think a fourth one now is underway. I'm calling it the Goldilocks consensus, and I'll get to that in a moment. It's a question mark. Uh, that's, what I, that's where I think Japan is headed, and I'll, I'll explain what all of that means. But out of each one of these moments of discourse that after a, after a consensus has unraveled, these moments of discourse, out of that there's been a reaffirmation of core values, um, in, in, in particularly uh, uh, core values about prestige and about autonomy that I, I think will inform the new consensus as it takes shape. So let's consider the arc to begin with. A widespread now that was empty, and that's a good thing. Uh, a widespread belief in the efficacy uh, of catching up and surpassing the West was, uh, was what helped elites forge that, that first consensus on the chart, that rich nation, strong army one, which was a consensus on borrowing foreign institutions, on, on learning Western rules, and on mastering Western practice. We're all familiar with that. It was a great success. But by the end of World War I, it was coming, it was coming apart. It was coming apart because the Western powers began to view Japan with real suspicion, uh, their Jap the Japanese ambitions with real suspicion. The consensus uh, became tattered. And after, I'm, I'm giving the shorthand, I'm going to come back to it in more detail in a moment. But after a period of domestic violence and of, of intimidation, a new consensus was forged on finding a less, let's just call it euphemistically, a less conciliatory response to world affairs, uh, which was the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. That, that, that attracted support from a very wide spectrum, um, a very wide swath of Japan's ideological uh, groups, really odd bedfellows, very strange bedfellows, but they came together in consensus and for reasons that I'll, I'll explore with you in a moment. Now Japan would be a great power and it would be the leader of Asia. Now the disaster that that effected is very well known uh, and from its ashes again uh, after considerable debate creative reinvention, Prime Minister Shi uh, uh, Yoshida uh, forged a pragmatic path that would solve and provide, would solve security, would provide security cheaply, let's just say. I call it cheap riding realism, in fact. Um, and it wouldn't be free, but it would be cheap. It would cost Japan, one thing that it would cost Japan more than anything else was its autonomy. It would cost Japan its autonomy, which is an expenditure that today, as I look at the debate, seems more and more dear to more and more people across a wider and wider swath of the Japanese domestic discourse. I would say we, pay, we should be paying attention to that. So the, that, that, the, the, the Yoshida doctrine that, that joined Japan at the US hip now is really, uh, is really under question. And it's under question both by those who support the alliance, but who want more equality within it, as well as by those who oppose it. So this fourth consensus has yet to reveal itself. That's why I'm calling it Goldilocks. It'll be not too much of this and not too much of that, not too hot, not too cold, not too close, not too far. But its contending political and its contending ideological divisions, I think, are apparent. We, can, we know what they are, and I'll try to describe them uh, for you in some detail. Now, there was nothing that Japanese leaders could do to change their location as an archipelago at the edge of the Asian continent. But they could debate whether Japan should be a maritime or should be a continental power. Uh, there's little they could do to manufacture natural resources, but they could debate on how to cheaply 
uh, and safely acquire them or substitute for, for them. And having embarked on an industrialization before their neighbors did, um, there would be little wish, it seems to me, to narrow the developmental distance between them, but they could debate and did whether Japan would be more secure as an Asian power or as a Western one. We've seen these debates over and over again, which is why I talk about connecting the ideological dots, because once developed, more, there was always the question of sizing Japan correctly uh, for the, whatever the current world order is. And, and by the way, I should stop and commend to you a new book by Kenneth Pyle, uh, the title of which I believe is Rising Japan, in which he looks at Japan's response to, new to old New World Orders and, in his view, the current change in the New World Order today. Um, should Japan be a big country? Should it be a small one? Should it seek military autonomy or should it rely upon allies? Should it, uh, should it acquire techno-economic autonomy? Is that within its grasp at all or is that chimerical? Uh, should wealth or strength be Japan's national priority? Could it have both at the same time? These questions are enduring questions. They're not new to, to now, and they're not historical, they're not historical artifacts either. Um, the array of contending preferences has been consistent. So Asianists and nationalists long have argued with liberals and internationalists. I'm being cavalier in my labeling. I apologize, but bear with me. Uh, but whether from the militarists in the 1920s or from Nihonjin-ron intellectuals in the 1980s, nativism really has always attracted a bit of a following. Um, Japanese liberals have always been debating the, the merits of economic security for generations, and likewise the enemies of liberalism, both on the left and the right, have combined uh, with each other, both in the 1930s and through the 1960s and into the 1970s. So the, the idea the ideas of liberal internationalists who first argued that Japan would be safest as a small maritime trading nation in the early 20th century really did inspire the Yoshida doctrine um, uh, that governed Japan's security during the Cold War and that has institutionalized itself and is still here today. It's being stretched real thin, but it's still here uh, today. So that kind of economics first uh, national security strategy was modeled on the one that prevailed into the 1920s, but that was abandoned in the 1930s and the 1940s. So although there have always been Japanese intellectuals who, who distrust markets, to be sure, uh, liberal internationalism has been an important security option for, uh, for, for generations. But, but even if the ideas are connected over time, and that's what I'm trying to do here, um, Changes in world order often skew their applications. So, for example, in the, in the 19th and 20th century, Asianism, and, and now parenthetically, to the extent one can even talk about it as a single thing, and I think one cannot, close parentheses, shares less with 21st century Asianism uh, uh, than the label suggests. So that during the Meiji period, Asianism was often an anti-state, an anti-state sentiment. Um, um, by the 20s, it took on a racist tone, and today it's, it's really a, a strategy, as I see it, a strategy for balancing against excess of U.S. power. Likewise, nationalism. Um, in the pre-war period, liberal and nativist uh, variants took turns dominating the national security agenda. And after the war, anti-American nationalists and anti-Soviet nationalists uh, found common ground, really, for arguing uh, for Japanese leadership of Asia. And today, these rather disparate groups hold common views on, uh, of how the U.S. alliance deprives Japan of its sovereignty. I've read that over and over again. I know many of you have as well. So in short, Japanese security discourse, the Japanese security discourse remains rife with variety expressed through values that have grown out of this historical arc. At least that's the argument I'm making and want to continue making through the, the course of this, this book. So let me, let me take a closer look at, at some of these connections with you. And I want to try to do this briefly, but, but again, I, I do this acknowledging that I practice history without a license. Um, oh, let me just say one thing here. In terms of, whoops, that's the wrong one. Laser, laser. Um, I, I've arranged this so you get a feel for it. So the liberal, liberal internationalists come out of small Japan liberals and big Japan liberals, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. And it they, they were very comfortable, actually, within the IPR and within the Shintaisei. Um, flowed through the Yoshida doctrine, and you start seeing that debate represent itself again today. Similarly, and I won't say the militarists are reflected in the current debate among 
uh, the, cons the, the right of the right wing of the LDP and the right wing of the DPJ. It's, they're not militarists. The militarists sort of disappeared and have come back in a new form. I'll talk about them in a moment. But the point is that these can be connected. And at least until I hear otherwise from you all, I'm going to continue trying to. Um, let's take on the small Japanists uh, and, and the middle power internationalists uh, today. And the, the, the best example of the connection, I think, is in the person of Ishibashi Tanzan. Uh, who is himself, was himself a complicated character because, after all, he ended up with Kishinobusuke and Hatoyama Ichiro uh, in the 1950s. But in his earlier incarnation, he, who, when he was editor of Toyo Keizai in the 1920s, he was the archetype of small Japanism. Uh, he said very clearly and repeatedly and publicly in, at a moment of danger to himself uh, that there was no advantage to be gained by placing Japan in direct conflict with the European powers and by inflaming Chinese nationalism, which he said was something that could not be suppressed in any event. So Japan would be cut off from Western sources of technology, those sources that would make it truly, truly strong. So he advocated the maritime security strategy and insisted that Japan relinquish all claims uh, on the continent after World War I. Free trade in competing blocks if necessary, but free trade and strong international organizations like the League of Nations, he said, were better guarantees of Japanese national security. And the small Japanese, small Japanists, Ishibashi being one, but there were others, Miura, there's, there's others, they saw clearly what today we, we call, Jonai calls soft power, they understood it. On the eve of the Washington Naval Conference in July 1921, Ishibashi published a series of editorials in Toyo Keizai called The Fantasy of Great Japanism, uh, in which he proposed abandoning all of Japan's colonies in order to reduce economic burdens and enhance Japan's moral standing in the region. So the moral authority, this notion of being attractive to others is a soft power notion. But it wasn't fundamentally a moral argument. It was based on economic self-interest. He was a liberal. And uh, as, as a liberal, he understood the calculation of self-interest. Trade outside the empire was greater than trade within the empire, and it was the source of Japan's technology. So why invite war um, with countries that Japan could profitably be trading with, he argued. Um, after all, it was, it was capital and technology, not territory for Ishibashi, that, that made a nation truly strong. So ag aggressors, he said, exposed themselves to danger in the form of balancing by other powers. Now, in the first, that was their view, and you can see it reflected very clearly in, in the Yoshida the Yoshida doctrine, the, the cheap riding realism, uh, the, the mercantile realism, really, of, uh, of post-war and Cold War Japan. But in the first instance, these small Japan liberals squared off against the big Japan liberals, um, most notably Shidehara and the Shidehara Gaiko. And the difference there was they both believed uh, that, that you know, in trade over, over arms and so forth, but the big guys, the big Japan liberals, were imperialists. They, they didn't have a problem uh, with Japanese, the Japanese rights on the continent, and they demand that those rights would be recognized on the continent. Um, their support for international organizations was premised on the idea that Japan should, through them, gain its rightful place on the continent. Um, so they consciously restrained Japanese ambitions, militarist ambitions anyway, steadfastly opposed militarists who sought to crush Chinese nationalism, and opposed formal annexation. So by, their view was that by not being excessively greedy, and by cooperating with other great powers through arms limitations and so forth, um, they, could, they, they, they could argue that economic diplomacy would deliver to Japan those rights that it, it, was, it was due. Let's see here. There we are. Actually, I should have, I should have offered you up this uh, a few moments ago, because these are the guys I've been talking about. I'm basically taking cross-sections of the, of the hard-to-read chart and making it a little bit easier to understand. So they were wrong. I mean, we know they were, they were wrong. We all know the failures of Shidehara Gaiko. Uh, and we also know that the two liberal streams were also only part of a vast river that, uh, that, that emptied into this ill-conceived Shin Taise. But the split within the liberal camp remains relevant today, and that's really the point I've been trying to hammer. Um, it's not as direct a connection as the one between the small Japanists and the middle power internationalists, but I think a line, as I said, can be drawn between the big Japan liberals of the 1920s and the realists today who dominate the LDP, the revisionist realists 
the revisionists and the realists. There, there's, there are two groups. There are actually three. I'm, I'm going to talk about them in the context of what I'm going to call for you normal nationalists. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So there's, there is actually, I'm, I'm not only getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to take a slight detour because there really is one element of, uh, of the failure of the Shintai, say, that, that represents the potential for another set of ideological dots that ought to be connected, and it's not on the chart. And that's the moral failures of the United States, it seems to me, and the way in which American foreign policy is proceeding uh, hypocritically. Um, the point is, this, we've seen this before. We've seen it before, and the consequences um, were when the United States and the other great powers, not just the United States, but specifically the United States, and the other great powers refused to make room for Japan on equal terms. I mean, we all know about the naval conferences, but it's Versailles I'm talking about. It's 1918, and it's the Racial Equality Clause. When Woodrow Wilson, who, who, who fancied himself um, one of the most, you know, who fancied himself a moral actor on the world stage, blind to really his own hypocrisy, denied the passage, unilaterally denied the passage of the Racial Equality Clause. There was a vote. It had a majority. He dismissed it. And I think one of the great tragedies of Japanese history, and I think one of the great tragedies of world history, really, was the inability of the liberals that I've just described to prevail, particularly the small Japan liberals, to prevail in Japan at that period of time, which was amplified by how fully they found, ended up finding common cause with the militarists. And the reason, it seems to me, was American um, betrayal, and, and really the betrayal of the other great powers as well, but particularly Wilson's betrayal. Um, and in my view, and here's the connecting the dots part, um, this was abetted by the open, as I say, the open hypocrisy of U.S. policy that I fear is being replayed uh, today um, as Washington insists on protection of human rights but justifies the practice of torture, uh, professes to defend sovereignty but quickly violates it, uh, insists on democratic values but supports autocracies and subverts uh, elected regimes with which, with which it disagrees. Uh, there, that's what I think. And, but I do think... I offer it not just to be categorical, but because I think we've seen it before, and when it happens, you undercut the ability of, of folks with whom you share values and you share ideals to be effective at home. In this case, the small Japan liberals and their, their, uh, their, uh, their subsequent generations. Um, I mean, I understand realism, but it's eroded in ways that I, that I fear uh, could affect the U.S.-Japan relationship and Japanese grand strategy as well. As well. But there it was. It, it unraveled in the Japanese case. And we're going to do it this way. There we are. It unravels. <clears throat> in, in political science and in, in economics, we talk about punctuated equilibria, right, in, in, in particularly out of economics. Punctuated equilibria. Well, it seems to me the Pacific War was the mother of all punctuated equilibria. Um, it was a, it's a history with which we're all familiar. As I see it, four groups emptied out of the Konoe uh, consensus. Uh, the first were pacifists who argued for the, uh, the doctrine of unarmed neutrality. Second were neo-militarists who never really got much traction, but who found some succor within the revisionist right of the LDP. So we have the, these neo-militarists, they sort of disappear, but some of them found common cause, with, with, particularly with Kishinobusuke but also with Hatoyama Ichiro and the Ashida people. Um, the pacifists, you'll see in a moment, empty right into the Yoshida doctrine, but they were not to be seen at this point. They these are the ones who come out of that particular consensus. Um, and, so there, and then this third group, this revisionist group, like Kishi, like Hatoyama, who had a checkered past, as we all know, but who came to hug and be hugged by the United States uh, and finally, pragmatists. Uh, I've already mentioned Yoshida Shigeru. I'll mention him some more. But people, the pragmatic right, the center right, who, who co-opted the pacifist agenda and forced, uh, formed the ruling mainstream of Japan's cheap-riding realists and cheap-riding realism as a national strategy. And if that, isn't a, if that wasn't a national strategy, you know, I, mean, I, mean, I really have a, a great argument with you all because that, that really strikes me as the, most, the easiest case to make. Now, it's the battle between these last two groups, these, um, again, where is the laser? There we are, these groups here, the revisionists and the, the mercantile realists, these guys, the, pragma the pragmatists 
and so forth. Let me go to the next slide. There we are. As you can see, the pacifists, this consensus forms. Indeed, the revisionists today are embracing much of the Yoshida doctrine. Prime Minister Koizumi talks about pacifism as a central ideal of Japanese grand strategy. Abe Shinzo talks about democracy and pacifism as well. So we'll, we'll talk about what the limits are to revisionist agenda. But the battle between these two groups um, over defense spending, to be sure, over constitutional revision, uh, and over the institutions of national security policymaking, particularly the, the defense agency's role uh, and the self-defense forces, but also the, uh, the National Security Council, um, was in my view the dominant, really the dominant domestic dynamic that was driving Japanese security policy during the, the Cold War. And that, that battle, as you know, and as I've already suggested, was, was resolved in favor of Kishi. And, and I'm sorry, in favor of Yoshida. Um, after Kishi's meltdown in 1960. Um, but the battle never really disappeared, and we're seeing it still uh, today. It continues to form the core of, of battles about defense, about constitutional revision. You see it in the Asakuni debate. You see it over and over again. Um, Yoshida was brilliant. Let me just say a quick word about this, and then I really gonna, I'm going to run on faster. But, but you know, after all, the question is whether Japan had a grand strategy. Well, in the case of, of, of uh, Yoshida, I think it's, it's not hard at all to argue how brilliantly he steered Japan between Article 9 and the U.S. alliance, uh, squeezing it between pacifism and traditional nationalism. He kept constitutional revisionism completely off the, uh, the, uh, the agenda. He kept the socialists out of, formally out of, out of power. And after he left the scene and after the revisionists mishandled the tumultuous security treaty crisis in 1960, his mainstream returned and prospered by crafting comprehensive security and defensive defense as central tenets of, of Japan's security doctrine. So his, he and then his successors expelled the ultranationalists, they pacified the revisionists, uh, and they watched the pacifists revise their own, their own position. The left learned to live uh, with the alliance, and the right learned to live with Article 9. That's why it's a consensus. Security policy now would be directed at, at enhanced autonomy, but would center on trade and international cooperation. A new consensus would be contrived uh, and achieved, really, around a Japan that would be a non-nuclear, lightly armed economic superpower. That's, that was the deal. That was the strategy. That was the consensus. Um, now, let me just, let me just suggest that, uh, that this all begins to come apart. I'm, realizing that I've taken a little longer than I would have liked on this point. Um, here we are. And it is all coming apart because Japan's entry into great power diplomacy through the merchant's entrance really delayed the inevitable, has delayed the inevitable. Uh, the Yoshida Doctrine was not built for a post-Cold War world. It provided some prestige, but it didn't provide much autonomy. And this Im um, imbalance really began, has begun to drive a new debate over national security. And at first, the debate was joined by the champions of each side in the old debate between revisionism and pacifism. You know, the, 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 the next generation of Kishiites against the next generation of Yoshidaites, if you like, the shorthand. But they were soon overtaken by new positions, it seems to me, as realists have now split from the neoconservatives. Um, I, I refer you to the extraordinary uh, editorials in the Omiuri Shimbun and the Ronza, the Taidan and Ronza in, in the February issue between Watanabe Tsuneo and uh, Wakamiya uh, Yoshibumi. Anyway, this, the, the realists and the neoconservatives really, I think, have split. And, uh, you know, Ozawa has sort of staked out a position that for a while when I had this chart, it, it tapered off into nothing, but he's back. He's back. So I've opened it back up again, I, to my surprise. Um, a new group of autonomists also is emerging, it seems to me. They are the heirs of the old militarists and neo-militarists, it seems to me, and I'll have more to say about them in a moment. I don't think they're mainstream by a long shot, but the middle power internationalists that were mainstream, the Yoshidaites, have switched. They're now anti-mainstream. They've been marginalized. These guys, the normal nationalists, uh, have become the mainstream. So that by the early 2000s, the revisionists would really have a grip on, on power uh, 
and both the pragmatist, as I say, and the pacifist would be marginalized. Neo-autonomists are in the wings. Now, if a new consensus hasn't taken shape by 2006, I think a Newton discourse clearly, clearly has. And as you can see, I believe the pacifists have been sidelined, the neo-militarists are back in new garb, but there are also persistent divisions within each of these groups, and that's the important thing I think about this. It's not just you know, uh, two groups like this, but there are divisions within each. There's a lot of fighting going on, and there's a lot of, a lot of discussion, and it's not just as simple as, you know, Shinbei, Hanbei kinds of, uh, of, of simplifications. And I want to try to characterize the discourse for you, but let me just suggest why first, before I get there, why I think the discourse um, a, has come about and why I think the, the, uh, the consensus has begun to unravel. This is one of those great overdetermined events and so that social scientists like to talk about. And, uh, there's a million reasons uh, why uh, this has been happening. Uh, the first one that's usually trotted out is the Gulf War and the, the sort of too little too late response that Japan uh, engineered. It was humiliating for Japan. They always talk about, in the official documents talk about, the humiliation of checkbook diplomacy. That, that, that you know, it, you lost a generation really in the foreign ministry as well, people who just bailed out and said, you know, you know, I didn't want to work in a place where they couldn't respond to an international crisis appropriately. That's the way the Gulf War is being written and being thought about. It also creates an opportunity for those who would want to do more with the Japanese military. And of course China um, is a, a, an important catalyst. For a while you couldn't say the C word when you talked about threats. Now you can say the C word when you talk about threats. Um, they helped by miscalculating on Taiwan in 1996 with their missile uh, tests, trying to, to intimidate the Taiwanese. That didn't work real well. The response on the part of the United States and Japan was to enhance the alliance. Um, it is clearly on the rise, and its military spending is as opaque as ever, which gives succor to those who say we need to do more. It's a classic, uh, well, it's, not, it's beyond a classic security dilemma, but we'll get to that in a moment. And of course, Chinese nationalism is not um, uh, the, 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 the periodic eruptions of Chinese nationalism is something for which um, those who want to do more on the Japanese with the Japanese military are very thankful. Let me put it that way. But then there are the villains from Central Casting, uh, these guys in North Korea. Uh, this is just, this really makes it easy. Um, between the Taepo Dong tests and the, the Fushinsen and, and, and all of these other things. Um, it just becomes very easy to make the argument that we need to have a, a more robust defense. Um, I've already talked a little bit about the reversal of main and anti-mainstream. This is really terribly important, and it's important because the guys who were the mainstream were resisting those changes, and it's only after the anti-mainstream became the mainstream, the revisionists became the mainstream, that those changes could, that these events and these interpretations could become national policy. And then there's this issue that, that, uh, that uh, Kato Yoichi, who's from the Asahi Shimbun, has done a lovely job describing in this chart. This is his. Um, he says, look, you know, there's, there's, he doesn't say the United States is a threat to Japan. I, I, I do. Um, but I, 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 use it in the, in the way, I use it in the way that I meant it earlier, which is that it, the United States behavior is threatening because it is destabilizing of its natural allies in Japan. That's what I mean. But the, th the threat, some people say, a, an alliance dilemma is this standard one in any alliance, that's to read Glenn Snyder, is abandonment entrapment. And what uh, Kato-san has done, which is really lovely, says, well, when the Japanese feel they're about to be abandoned, they bandwagon with American power. But when they bandwagon with American power, they risk entrapment in American wars. You know, America likes to go to wars. We, we do it a lot. Um, and when you risk entrapment, in, then you pull back and you try to balance against American power. I think this is where, that's, the Goldie, that's where Goldilocks is going to come in in a moment. I think he's right about this. this is, read his stuff. Um, but you know, when you start doing that, you raise the risk of abandonment. So it's, it's that kind of a, a cycle. Maybe, he doesn't call it a hedging cycle. I do. But maybe there may be a better way to describe it. But I, I think it's an important dynamic in any event. And so what's been going on has been quite clear. And um, I'm going to, I mix metaphors. I, I don't know what to do in the book. Help me out with this one. I talk about Yoshida baking a pacifist loaf, and then I talk about salami slices. There's something really wrong um, with, with my, I, the, I didn't get the metaphor gene right. So I, 
Um, but the salami slicing idea is German, at least when, when I talk about it, the salami tactic, salami tactic comes from Volker Ruhl. And he was the one in the early 1990s, and many of the Germans in the audience will know this much better than I do, who said to the German people, look, the world has changed, and we've got to, pre we've got to prepare ourselves psychologically for a different role in, in world affairs, particularly in military affairs, particularly in peacekeeping and so forth. And the question is, um, uh, you know, he, he, he said we need the salami tactic. So you take a little bit of, at a time until you're done and you've got the thing looking like you want it to look. So Vokuru, um, there is no Vokuru in, in Japan, but the closest to him is a group of young Japanese bureaucrats in the JDA who were empowered by Hatakeyama-san in 1992, 1993, when, he's, when he was Jimuji-kan, to think seriously about what sorts of things have to be changed in order for Japan to play a more, uh, a, a more fulfilling, shall we say, role in world affairs. So this list, you'll notice most of this list takes shape after 1993. Uh, the PKO law, of, cor of course, but there's also a PKF law that's on ice. That is, Japan is just waiting for the right PKF opportunity. And that right PKF opportunity may involve gaining international legitimacy by putting troops really in harm's way. Peacekeeping force, yes. Thank you. Peacekeeping force. Um, 1996, the redefinition of Japanese national security's primary objective, which was from homeland to the areas surrounding Japan, which is non-geographical. Um, I said ironically. 1999, uh, maritime interdiction, the emergency laws, which had been held up for some 20 years, finally went through. The relaxation of the arms export ban in two, December 2004 is something that's not gotten much attention because it was bundled into the Ballistic Missile Defense Agreement. But the Ballistic Missile Defense Agreement, you know, that's one thing. It's a, it's a weapons system, and it's an important weapons system, uh, budgetarily speaking. Um, technologically is another issue. But it's a really important, um, it was an important opportunity to relax a self-imposed constraint that the Japanese, that Yoshida's doctrine had placed upon Japan. They had tied one arm, two arms behind their back. Well, those, at least one arm is now free. And I think things are, are going to change. I think Japanese and, and, you know, Japanese watch as the United States and the Brits and other uh, 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 countries are doing major weapon systems collaboratively and the Japanese are left out. It's a self-imposed restriction that they're, they're working hard to undo. Um, of course, constitutional revision, and this key word, globalization of the alliance, and what I'm calling effectively collective defense. And Japanese talk about collective defense. They can't do collective defense. Well, that's convenient. When you don't want to do collective defense, you say, we can't do collective defense. And when you want to do collective defense, you send destroyers to Diego Garcia. You allow the, the plane. You don't mind, and you actually have the, the Naikaku Hosei Kyoku, the Cabinet Legislation Bureau, uh, announce that it's okay if the if the fuel that they're delivering is used in, in warplanes that bomb Iraq. I call that a de facto collective security, well, it's collective defense. And putting boots on the Iraqi ground, it's all very carefully, very carefully laid out, these boots that went to a very peaceful part of Iraq, but there it is. So it's true that the Defense Department has enlisted Japan uh, in its, as a partner in its global strategy, and, and the globalization of the alliance could be the base, could be the base for the next consensus grand strategy for Japan. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I, and I think it's not going to happen for several reasons. First of all, I think given the steady and coordinated drumbeat uh, of, uh, of, of, of US and Japanese insistence on the globalization, you have to be reminded that abandonment is always an option for the United States. It's still an option for the United States. And some argue that the US has less reasons today to care about Japan and the bases in Japan uh, than ever before. For one reason, it's about technological change. Um, U.S. Navy doctrine now calls for sea strike, which would be to protect power, uh, I'm sorry, to project power. Uh, sea shield, which would extend the, the defense perimeter far from American shores. And sea basing, which would project U.S. sovereignty into, deep into international waters. So if you have a doctrine like that and the capabilities on which it's based both on sea and on every, well, nearly every continent around the world, the relative value of large fixed bases declines. And that's, 
that's what's beneath and, and undergirds the force transformation that we've, been all, we've all been reading about. So the United States talks about Japan as a strategic hub rather than a lily pad, but on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily need to continue thinking of Japan in that way. And should Japan's bases become less significant, or even if not, the United States is apt to, to ask Japan to add value to, to the alliance in new ways and ways that may be more complicated, more difficult, more unpleasant uh, than, than in the past. So Japan, uh, should Japan say no, or even say maybe uh, to the United States, it will accelerate uh, Americans' recalculation of the gains it makes from guaranteeing Japanese uh, defense and force Japan to reconsider whether it ought to, uh, to pursue a security policy that's based upon American protection. I'm not predicting this but I'm saying we're foolish if we don't think about, about that possibility. That flexible and expanded coalitions of the willing, to not coin a phrase, those loosely integrated networks of overlapping partnerships would likely become more effective, more attractive to the Americans, more efficient than the top-heavy kinds of fixed <coughs> and diplomatically costly alliances that the United States is, from its view, entangled in. Now, that's, that sort of open security architecture is one in which webs replace hubs and spokes, and it threatens to raise the cost. And this is the mainline from a Japanese debate, from the perspective of the Japanese debate. It raises the cost to Japan uh, for the provision of its own security, and it needs to be prepared for that. And I don't think it is. Um, okay. Now, let's talk about that, that debate and that discourse ooh, as quickly as, I, as you can stand it. Uh, let's see. Oh, I, these are some of the salami slices that, that, uh, that come. The JDA becomes a, a, a Japan Defense Ministry. Uh, the Self-Defense Forces become the Self-Defense Military, uh, and so forth. I, we can come back to that, and I'd be happy to talk through some of these. Article 9 would change. And the, this is the key. Actually, let me just say one word about this. This is really the key. Joint operations, the joint use of force by U.S. and Japanese militaries, flying wingtip to wingtip, strike missions, shoulder to shoulder, infantry battles, that kind of stuff happens, and the Yoshida Doctrine is truly toast, and it's not there yet. But that's if you play out uh, current trends, and I'm going to explain to you why I don't think we should. Okay. This is how I think of the current discourse. Um, I think you can sort the debate along two axes. The, um, the first is a measure of the value placed on the alliance with the United States, and that's the horizontal, the horizontal axis. So it's, it's characterized at one end by hug the US. That's a British phrase, by the way. Uh, hug the US close. And the other is distance yourself from the United States. Um, At the right-hand extreme, really, we're talking about a view that the U.S. is Japan's most important source of security and has to be hugged, has to be hugged closely. The extent of U.S. power, the limits of Japanese capabilities, everyone understands both of those things, and those things are central and strategic. The strategic importance of the alliance and maintaining it at all costs, even sending troops to Iraq, you see, um, is paramount. And U.S. bases become a central part of, of any coherent national security strategy. On the other, on the other side, of course, here um, are, are the folks who say, look, the United States is a particularly dangerous bully, and it's going to make real trouble for us if we don't get a little, if we don't hedge this thing, we don't get a little distance, we don't want to be entangled in their adventures. And the more that the bases are here, the more likely we are to be entangled. It's not a new argument. This is... I mean, I say it's a new, it's a current discourse. I didn't say it's a new discourse because I do think you can connect the ideological dots. That was where I started, you'll recall. But it is the current discourse, and it is, it is something we've all heard before. And located in the middle around here would be the folks who call upon Japan to rebalance its Asian and its American relationships more, more effectively. So this first measure, then, is a surrogate, uh, as you've already guessed. Um, it's a surrogate measure of the relative value you place on on the dangers of abandonment and entanglement. So those with a high tolerance for the former are willing to, uh, to keep a greater distance from the United States, and those with a, a high uh, tolerance for the latter uh, are not. Those with a high tolerance for, for entanglement, then, are not all status quo oriented, though. And that's, this is important, because that's where the second axis comes in. 
The status quo may be around here, moving to around here, uh, not yet crossing that barrier on the use of force, but that's the direction it's moved over time from the, from the mercantile realists and the middle power internationalists and the shoni honshugisha through the revisionists to here. That's been the move. Um, Critics maintain that stripped to its essence, the idea of a normal nation is a nation that can go to war. I mean, that's full stop. That's what, that's what normal nation is, uh, according to the critics. And some say, you know, some of those who support the U.S. alliance then are more than willing, indeed, argue that if we're going to be normal, we have to be willing and able to do that, to deploy the self-defense forces, to share alliance burdens. And then there are others who, are, who would prefer Japan to continue to, to limit itself uh, to rear area uh, support. Now, some of the former wish Japan to be a great power again. Um, they're associated with the idea, well, they, they wish Japan to be a great power again. Um, in their view, look, the statute of limitations for Japanese mid-20th century aggression has long since expired, and uh, it's time for Japan to step onto the international stage as an equal uh, of the United States. The latter group, these middle power internationalists, this is, again, I'm staying on this side of the, of the chart for now, uh, believe Japan have, really should remain a small power uh, with self-imposed limits to its rights, its right to belligerency. Uh, Japan's contributions to world affairs should remain predominantly non-military. Prosperity is the way to prestige, and that's their prime, their prime value. And among those who prefer Japan to keep a greater distance from the United States, these people on both, both top and bottom, um, there are those who build an independent, full-spectrum Japanese military, uh, and those who would reject the military institution altogether. Um, this, I think, frames, at least for my analysis, frames four choices in security, security policy. Four discrete strategic choices, each of which is consistent with enduring values that I've tried to describe for you, uh, that they link back across the historic arc and I think um, are worth thinking about in that context. Um, the path here is the path that Japan's already embarked upon, which is to move this way. Um, it's the first choice of Japan's normal nationalists, especially within them, of the revisionists, um, who would further bulk up what is already the most modern indigenous military in the Far East. They openly seek to equalize the alliance in order to build a bigger and better military shield. They discount the dangers of entrapment. They're just not all that worried. Okay. Then, oh, these are the guys I was just talking about, sorry. I don't call them normal nationalists, in fact. I think they're, you know, they, it's not Futsu no Kuni, it's really Ijo no Kuni. It's an abnormal Japan that they're after, and it's an abnormal Japan doing these things that I've just described, acquiring new capabilities to reach out and touch adversaries, playing a glo more global security role, doing these things, and it's abnormal because Japan won't say no in this context. And a nation this size uh, that won't say no, that will simply do what the American uh, senior partner in the relationship says is, is not a, it's not normal and I think it's therefore British style normality which is, if you'll excuse me if, uh, to my British friends in the room, also abnormal. Um, and also I think um, it will alienate Japan, continue to alienate Japan from its regional partners and alienate Japan from its, these leaders, from their domestic constituents. So for those reasons, I think um, it's not a likely outcome. For those reasons and more which I'll describe, it's not a likely outcome. The other option, or the other possibility in the, of the, the second of the four, in a way, is really armed neutrality. These guys would build a better military shield but theirs would be nuclear and it would be operationally independent of the United States. In addition to a credible independent nuclear deterrent, Japan would acquire that full spectrum military, uh, would be configured not merely to support uh, and supply US forces or to defend against terrorists and missile attacks, but one that really could in fact reach out and touch adversaries independently. So if you're, you're armed this way with an improved uh, shield and a sharpened sword, you seek to maintain a military advantage over your peer competitors. So you're playing, a, you're playing an, an offensive realist game rather than the defensive realist game that's really characterized Japan to this day. Japan then would be, that would be normal. 
Um, and it would join the other great powers engaged, at least in a realist context, in that permanent struggle uh, to, to maximize national strength. It would certainly generate pressure. This choice would certainly generate pressure. For, it, would, it would eliminate the US bases, of course. But it would also enhance the prospect of full abandonment by Washington. It would also significantly accelerate the security dilemma that's well underway in the region. A third possibility is this mercantile Japan, uh, the return to mercantile Japanism, which is the, the contemporary version of the small Japanism. It's a Japan that will not say yes to the United States. And that, 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 at least on the military side, will not say yes to the United States on the vertical axis. It would be tethered to the current constitution uh, and to evolved, evolved norms, that is, those norms of pacifism. Um, it, would, it would roll back the more ambitious successes of the revisionists to something closer to homeland security and truly defensive defense. It might go a little further, but not much. And it would remain as comfortable as possible with the junior partnership with the United States. And there's a final choice. I don't have a slide for it, because I think it's so unlikely. But that's that pacifist box on the lower left, uh, which would be to achieve autonomy for Japan just through prosperity. Um, these folks are, act are active today in non-governmental organizations and NGOs. They're not affiliated necessarily with political parties. The political parties they would be affiliated with have no standing in the Japanese diet anymore. Um, they too would reduce Japan's military posture, maybe reduce it to, to zero. Um, they would eschew hard power for soft power, so they're campaigning for expanding defensive defense to the entire region, for um, making Asia a nuclear-free zone, and so forth. Their manifest problem, it seems to me, is that, that the Japanese public is unmoved by their prescriptions. The Japanese public has moved very far uh, from, from, their, uh, from their camp. So in March 2003, when millions, March 2003, when millions took to the streets in Rome and in New York and in Paris and in London, uh, a couple of thousand rallied in Hibiya Park. That is somehow pacifist ideals uh, 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 about, idea, about prosperity and so forth. They somehow seem relics of an earlier, more idealistic time when Japan could not imagine, much less openly plan for uh, military contingencies. Those days are past. So where does it leave us? And uh, I apologize for having gone on quite a rather more length than I had planned. Let me try to end with the Goldilocks consensus. My guess is that none of these individual uh, arguments is going to prevail, and that for several reasons. One is um, that if, if, if anything else has been true about Japanese grand strategy, it's been relatively pragmatic. Uh, you know, jumping off the terrace of Kiyomizu te Temple, well, that's, you know, that's not pragmatic. But um, apart from, uh, from that, we've seen a deep pragmatism in, in Japanese uh, foreign and security policy. Importantly, there are divisions, as I've suggested and tried to suggest, within each of the quadrants that I've described. So there are fights going on within each. And in each one of those cases, there are folks who will pull Japan away from uh, the core of, of each quadrant. And those Above all, above all else, not necessarily above all else, but in addition to those things, Japan is characterized, I think, by a robust democratic politics that we don't often give it enough credit for, which is there are intra-party dynamics. Look at the campaign now uh, over the next presidency, the presidency of the LDP. And there has, in fact, been alternation in power, but it's also been alternation within the LDP. Um, but it's been real. These groups that I've described, the revisionist pacifists, were truly fighting with each other and, and doing so over the course of some 50 or 60 years. Moreover, the relative decline of the United States and the rise of China will sober up, will sober up those who are on the sort of a status quo path toward the close hug of the United States, it seems to me. So I, I talk about this uh, as a possible Goldilocks uh, consensus. Um, and I see connections. I see connections. There's evidence that leaders of each of the quadrants, including Ozawa Ichiro, including Abe Shinzo, are moving in, on different paths and different, at, at a different pace. But they may well be moving this way. We should talk about that. But that possible consensus is, and I say, I say Goldilocks. Is there anyone here who doesn't know the Goldilocks story? Because th that's really it's a premise. Thank you. When I, when I talk to Japanese friends about this, I completely blank stares, and I've seen a few in this room. So let me, the Goldilocks story is the Goldilocks and the three bears. She walks into the 
the, the home of the three bears in the middle of the forest, and she finds there are three chairs. One is too big, one is too small. She breaks it, she sits in it, she breaks it, and one is just right. And then there's porridge on the table, and one is too hot, one is too cold, the other is just right. So when I talk about Goldilocks, I'm talking about getting it, resizing, resizing ambitions, resizing doctrine, resizing capabilities to get it just right. And what just right means to me means um, hedging. It means, it means developing a more, I mean, Japan is always hedged. Um, and and uh, so is the United States. Everyone hedges. It's a central tenet of international politics that one hedges, one ensures. Indeed, if you're a realist, one over-insures uh, for national security because you can never be, you can never have enough security, right? So you over-insure, you build bristling uh, armaments. Uh, that's, that's one form of, uh, of hedging. But the Japanese have developed what, what I've called elsewhere a dual hedge, a hedge against economic threats at the same time you hedge against military threats. And I, I'm, I'm suggesting that part of the Goldilocks consensus is going to be, uh, whoa, I didn't mean to do that. Let's try this. And I'm told this is going to be hard. Because I have to get, it's in German, but I know it's the second one. But if I don't have a, could you get me, uh, is there, yeah, uh, is it possible to go back one slide? Actually, go to the second one, yeah. There it is, bang. Thank you. So this is what I mean, thank you very much. This is the, the doctrinal manifestation of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, a Japan that can say no and sometimes will, so it's not an English model, it's a German, Canadian, French model. It's, it's a nation that is armed for deterrence. It's not a nation that's underarmed. Japan will be armed. Okay, these, these, this is, we're not going back to mercantile realism in its full-blown form. That's not what I see. Japan will be armed for deterrence and for counter-coercion. Um, so the Goldilocks posture, this, this is all faux math. You know, I'm not fooling anyone I know. I'm not even fooling myself because I have to keep reminding myself what the hell I put down here. But the GP is Goldilocks posture. So it's a realism which is... It's a revisionism. The revisionist, what the revisionists have achieved, times something less, something more than the mercantilists would like, and something less than the autonomists would prefer. That's what I mean by that. And I, I see it as a robust dual hedge in which security is is an economic, an economic strategy plus alpha. Today's economic strategy plus, and the plus for me would have to be um, the the East Asian community and being more vigorous in, in finding ways to cooperate in the ASEAN plus three context. And um, the military at 2006 plus alpha, because I think the military has been legitimated in Japan. That's been the real achievement of the revisionists. They've got it. And now I think they're going to continue building to it, but they're not going to necessarily be doing it at the pace and in the direction that the Americans uh, would prefer. So a final word. and. and perhaps a, a, a redundant one, um, but we've seen how more than a century of changes in international politics have affected political discourse. Uh, in Japan, mainstreams have shifted and they've shifted repeatedly. Strategies have come and they've, and they've gone. And over the course of, of the past century, two substantial national policy, national security consensuses, first was militarist, second was pacifist, um, were established and each was built with, in a paradigm within which the sharpest edges of ideological distinction, ideological, disc, ideological battles were, were shaved. They were shaved down to accommodate something that was coherent. And in the process, once marginal views were, were embraced and broadly shared values were splintered. So Japanese policy, it seems to me, in grand strategy was buffeted by shifts in the domestic civil-military relations. I didn't talk about that today, but it's really important. Political leadership. Um, uh, uh, went from military leadership in the 1930s. It lost military leadership in the 1930s, we all know that. But from military leadership to bureaucratic civilian control uh, until recently. And today I think the bureaucratic civilian control has given way to political control, true political control uh, of the military, something which I think the Japanese who, who value democracy ought to be cognizant of and really quite proud of. And I think we're witness to an active debate uh, as I've said, about the value of this, this doctrine that's, that really delivered so much that was so good for Japan during the Cold War, which is the Yoshida Doctrine. The question, of it, the question is, is it going to continue to expand till it breaks, or is something else going to, to take its place? 
Um, the change to change, really, in, in Japanese security policymaking has been, I think, auspicious uh, for the Japan-U.S. alliance. It's been, it's been auspicious for the development of a more muscular and a more autonomous Japan as well, though. And it's not destabilized regional uh, or global security. So Japan, in my view, may not ever again be as central to world affairs as it was during the 1930s, uh, nor as marginal to world affairs as it was in the 19, well, during the Cold War, really. Um, but once I think revisionism has run its course, and I think it will, I think they'll be pulled back, um, and once accommodations are made in its economic diplomacy, which I think we'll see, and we'll see in a big way, I think Japan will have constructed for itself a policy space in which it can be selectively pivotal in world affairs, and it will have, as I said, create, created options uh, for itself. So it's these twin rewards of, of central values of prestige and autonomy that's been with, they're really within Japan's grasp for the first time at the same time in living memory. And that, to me, adds up to the makings of a new grand strategy. So I'll stop there, and I, I welcome your corrections and comments. Thank you very much.